I'm going to ask you today to open your Bible to 1 John. We're going back into 1 John today. I'm asking you to open your Bible, 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to close out 1 John chapter 3 today. So we're going to be looking specifically at verses 19 through 24. And uh, I think we're going to have a great time in the Word of God. I want to begin with the story that John MacArthur told uh, one time um, regarding a, a plane crash in 1984. And this is quoted in, in one of his uh, articles that he wrote. And he says, in 1984, an Avianca Airlines jet crashed in Spain. Investigators studying the accident made an eerie discovery. The black box cockpit recorder revealed that several minutes before the impact, a shrill computer-synthesized voice from the plane's automatic warning system told the crew repeatedly in English, pull up, pull up, pull up. The pilot, evidently thinking that the system was malfunctioning, switched the system off. Minutes later, the plane plowed into the side of the mountain. Everyone on board died. You know, the conscience, God has given every human a conscience. And the conscience is God's warning device implanted in all people. And just as physical pain notifies the body, notifies the brain that something somewhere is wrong, the conscience itself does that. It's pretty amazing because it doesn't matter what culture you go to. It doesn't matter what tribe you might be in. There are certain things that are just transcendent across all human beings. You know, across all cultures, everybody knows it's, it's not to, you're not supposed to steal. Every thief seeks to cover his tracks, right? Across all cultures, they know that murder is wrong. Murder, the taking of an innocent life, is wrong. God has placed the conscience. Romans 2.14 talks about the law of the conscience being placed in the heart. God has given that to all men. Now, it doesn't mean that the conscience doesn't mean regarding you know, the moral law of God, but it is the innate law of God, which is why whenever you want to share the gospel with someone, you want to begin with the law of God. You want to begin with the Ten Commandments. Why? Because the law stimulates the conscience. It stimulates it. When you say to somebody, how many lies have you told? You know, have you taken the Lord's name in vain? Have you ever looked on a man or a woman with lust in your heart? It stimulates the conscience. And in that conversation, you can show someone that they are indeed a sinner, which is why if they are indeed of a sinner, and if God is holy, just, and right, then they need a Savior to be right with God. Sometimes we reverse engineer that. We go right to the grace of God. Oh, Jesus loves you. Jesus, God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. And people look at you and you go, why shouldn't God love me? I love myself as well. Right? So God has placed that conscience in every human being. Now, the conscience can be manipulated. It can be manipulated. Um, it can be seared. Right? The whole conversation, I'll take one conversation, take the conversation of abortion, people that, that, that think that abortion is okay, they'll divert to another issue. Why? Because the conscience has been manipulated by another instance. 
Timothy tells us the conscience can be seared. It could be pressed in. It could be hard. Romans chapter 1 tells us that after a while of ignoring the conscience, what does God do? God gives them over to a reprobate heart. God turns them over and they go continually down. By the way, if you ever read Romans 1, it's really, it's really nice because it's the way the, it is laid out, verses 19 on, is that they just continue to go down the stairs and things get worse and worse and worse. But one of the greatest gifts for the believer is a cleansed conscience. That comes in salvation. Our conscience is made clean by the blood of Jesus Christ because we now have forgiveness of sin. And believers can't have that clean conscience. And with a clean conscience comes certain assurances from God. And in our text today, in John chapter 3, verses 19 to 24, we're going to see John talk about four specific assurances that believers in Christ can have. And the four are, and we're going to look at them in our text today. Number one, we can have an assurance of God's truth. We can have an assurance of God's truth. Number two, believers can have an assurance of answered prayer. Number three, I know this is one near and dear to everybody's heart. Believers can have assurance of salvation. And last but certainly not least, believers can have an assurance of God's presence in their life. So we're going to take a look at this text. Join with me in uh, 1 John chapter 3, beginning with verse 19. I'll read it through and then we'll go through the text. Verse 19, And we shall know by this that we are of truth and shall assure our heart before him. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. And the one who keeps his commandment abides in him and he in him. And we know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Father, we ask your blessing your attendance, your anointing to this word, Lord. May Christ increase in everything else decrease. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's take a look at the verse, the first verse here in our text, verse 19. And here we're going to see that believers can have assurance of God's truth. We shall know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our heart before him. John begins by referencing back to what he has told us in verses 14 through 18 of this text. And those verses reference, reference the Christian love of Christ among the brethren. As John states in verse 16, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, 
and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This love of God is the sacrificial love of God. We've talked about this a lot. This is the agape love of God. That sacrificial love of God that God has given. The one that is epitomized by Christ dying on the cross for the redeemed. How Christ laid down his life for the church. In John's admonition to the church is that we are, as believers, we are to love in the same manner as Christ. I mean, that is the glory and the mystery of the church. A bunch of individual people of different everythings, different ethnicities, different languages, different cultures, everything. I look around this room, we're, we're an assortment of different people. But we can come together under the blood of Jesus Christ, in one in Christ, and love one another in that manner. John continues in verse 19 as he states, and he says, We shall know by this that we are of the truth. And again, here's another word we should be pretty familiar with. It's the Greek word gnosko, which means that experiential knowledge, not merely, not merely just perceiving, not merely just getting intellectual data, but it also involves that experiential knowledge, knowledge that comes firsthand. And he continues that it is when we are living in that love, sacrificing ourselves for the brethren, that we can know that we are of the truth of God. We could be assured of the truth of God and have confidence before God. Notice what he says and what he says, and we shall be assured of our, we shall assure our heart before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart, right? And knows all things. Listen, only those who are genuinely converted, only those who have been genuinely born again, can have confidence before God. I want, I want to repeat that. Only those who have been genuinely born again, those who have come in repentance and faith to Christ, those who have turned their back on the world, those that could say like the Apostle Paul, I've been crucified with Christ, therefore no longer it is I who live but Christ liveth in me. Only those can have that confidence. Only those can be assured that they are in the truth of God. Romans 5.1 states this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And I've spoken about this on numerous occasions. It doesn't mean we have a sensation of peace. It means that we are no longer striving against God. We're not at enmity with God. We are not warring at God. Why? Because we're no longer in sin. We are in Christ. And so the believer in Christ has peace with God. And the believer in Christ can have assurance of God's truth and assurance before God. This is what John means simply when he states that we are of truth and shall assure our heart before him. What a great thing. You know, we live in a day and age where 
it is generally accepted and it's generally agreed that there is no absolute truth. None. You know, and we see this being played out in our culture today. Everything is relative. Everything is subjective. I could believe if this room went on fire... I can believe with every ounce of sincerity within me that the room is not on fire. Everybody could be running out. The fire department is coming. I hear the sirens right away, but I could stand here and go, it's not on fire. It's not on fire. It's, a, the, the, it's not on fire. And one of two things are going to happen. One, I'm going to die of smoke inhalation. Or two, I'm going to be burned to death. My sincerity did not change. It did not neglect the, uh, it did not negate the objective truth that the room was on fire. That's just the simple truth. But how many do this with their spiritual lives? I don't believe that. I don't believe this. I don't believe the other different thing with their spiritual lives. And instead, place themselves in peril before a holy and righteous and a just God. Look at verse 20. And whatever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. This verse is a continuation of the thought expressed in verse 19. John knows that there are times when a believer's faith grows weak, when the circumstances of life will overwhelm him, and perhaps failures in their life rise up and condemn us. John knows that the enemy wants to instill in the believer's heart doubt about whether or not they are saved. And if we've seen anything in this epistle of 1 John, we've seen this. John's message throughout is, you are how you live. If you practice righteousness, then you're righteous. If you practice unrighteousness, you're unrighteous. If you abide in truth, then you're of the truth. If you abide in falsehood, then you're of lies. I mean, this is plastered across this epistle. And so John is telling us, even as believers, there are going to be circumstances in our lives where maybe fear, uncertainty, and doubt enter our hearts. But the conscience and the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit is designed not to condemn the believer, but to convict the believer. There's a profound difference between guilt and conviction. Guilt is usually brought upon self and brings with it a whole baggage of other things. Conviction is designed to bring the believer to the place where the believer recognizes, I have been living wrong. I have sinned against you. I am in need of repentance. And to bring the believer to the point where you say, Father, forgive me for my sin. How glorious is the gospel? I mean, it's 1 John 1, 9 that we read several weeks ago, right? And it, what does 1 John 1, 9 say? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But do you think our adversary, the enemy, wants us to know that? No. 
He wants us to dwell in that sin. He'd do anything, anything possible to get us to be robbed of the joy of salvation. And the number one tool he uses is ourselves and our failures. But notice what John says here. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart. Our salvation is greater than our heart. Our heart being the center of emotion, the center of will, right? The essence of our personality. Our heart may condemn us at times. We may say, why did I do this? We may be stuck. How did I sin in that matter? How did I do such a thing? How did I speak to a brother that way? How did I speak to a sister that way? How did I say some of the things that I said or do some of the things that I do? And we can bring that to the Lord and we can confess our sins and he will forgive us our sins. Why? Because God is greater than even our hearts. Our hearts can deceive us, can it not? Can our heart tell us you're not who Christ says you are? I think that's probably the biggest problem in the church today. And when I talk to many people, and when I counsel many people, it seems to be on this issue of the heart. It seems to be on this issue that I, I can't get past what I did years ago. I talk to many people, good Christians, sound Christians, who stayed locked in the past because of a particular transgression and a particular sin, unable to get the forgiveness of Christ. Listen, if I leave myself to my own devices, this is the gospel truth. If I leave myself to my own devices and I go back and I think of the person I was before Christ and I dwell upon that, you know what's going to happen to me? I'm going to fall apart. Why? Because there's so much sin. So much sin. And I look back on my life now as an older person and much more mature in Christ. And I look back on my life and I go, who was that man? Inconceivable. The level of sin. The way I used to speak. The way I used to carry myself. The, the evil motives of my heart. The violence and the contention that was in me. I want to lash out at at everybody I could find. There wasn't a fight that I would walk away from. I was just, I was a sweltering mess of sin. But God does not hold us in that past. Christ came to redeem us from the curse of the law. And the curse of the law was sin. And the power of sin is death. And so I can look at the Lord with integrity as I go before the Lord in my prayers. And I can say rightfully and with integrity, God, why in the world would you save me? But it doesn't end there. Because the next thing is, but I thank you that you did. 
The Old Testament writer said, Lord, if you would mark our transgressions, if you would put a transaction, if you would put a tick list or a checklist next to every time we sin, the writer says, Lord, if you were to mark our transgressions, who would stand? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is, no one would stand. But God, being rich in mercy and grace with which he loved us, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You ever share the gospel with a person, you invite them to come out to church, and you get an answer like this, not exactly, but something that goes like this, man, if I walked into a church, the ceiling's going to collapse on me. And that's usually followed up, listen, I like what you said, but give me a few minutes, let me get myself right, and then when I get myself right, I'll come to church. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. When I was in the depth of my depravity, Christ died. Christ never asked me, nor did he ask any person, make yourself right before you come to me. Because it's an impossibility. The only one who can make us right is Jesus Christ himself. John here in verse 20 talks about whatever the heart condemns us, God is greater than the heart. John has already talked about this earlier in the epistle. That if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The really big ones? Nope. The really small ones? Nope. All sin. If you are in Christ, you've been cleansed from that sin. It may be today that you're here and you're struggling and you're saying, but you don't know, you don't know what I've done. Listen, I'm telling you, I don't care what you've done. I'm not the judge. Your God is the judge. But if you're here and you say, I could never be forgiven for this, I want you to cry out to God and say, Father, forgive me for my sin. And I cast it on you. I tell people all the time when I pray with them privately, if they're coming to me for a sin issue, I said, this is what I want you to do. As we go to the Lord in prayer, I want you to say your sin. Say it. And it's a tough pill for a lot of people. Say it. God knows anyway. Say it. There's something about when you confess that sin. When you hear it. It stimulates something deep inside, and it brings about deep repentance. So we see here in verses 19 and 20 that we as believers can be assured in God's truth. I mentioned earlier that one of the greatest things of salvation is a cleansed conscience. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 10. Hold yourself in 1 John 3, but turn over to Hebrews 10. Beginning with verse 22. Verse 22. The writer of Hebrews, notice what he says here. Let us draw near with a sincere heart. Notice these words. In full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean, 
from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. One of the blessings, one of the assurances of God's truth is a cleansed conscience. Why? Because it is God who justifies. It is God who sanctifies. And it is God who glorifies and will glorify us on that great day. Listen, here's a great truth. Believers have a Savior who ever lives to make intercession for the saints. Isn't that glorious? That when Christ ascended, that Christ ever lives to make intercession for us? Isn't it glorious that we have a Holy Spirit who prays for us with groanings too deep for words? Isn't that part and parcel of what the Lord said, that I will never leave you, I will never forsake you? Amen. A Savior who paid with His own life for our salvation. Always remember this, that salvation means deliverance from imminent danger. Deliverance from imminent danger. We have a Savior who delivered us from imminent danger, and ever lives to protect, to defend, and to uphold his own. So we see the first thing, we have an assurance of God's truth. Let's look at verses 21 and 22. We see here believers also have an assurance of answered prayer. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence with God And whatever we ask, we receive of Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. Now, let me share something here. These are verses that often get misconstrued or misinterpreted. I believe that there are two types of prayer. Two types of prayer. There is me-centered prayer, and there is God-centered prayer. Many, many, many people are focused on me-centered prayers. Simply, simply put, it begins with a preoccupation of self. You go into prayer with yourself as the center of focus when you pray. The intention of people with me-centered prayer sometimes is the intention and their motivation is to get something out of God for themselves. Prayer becomes a means to an end. I'm going to pray this way because God said if I pray this way, I'm going to get what, notice my words now, I'm going to get what I want. So going into it, it's not about God. It's about me and getting what I want. And sometimes you hear these prayers and you hear the people starting to butter up God. You know, starting to impress God. And so they throw about the Word of God like some kind of Christian incantation. By the way, that's one of the failures of the church perhaps over the last 50, 60 years. Over the last 50, 60 years, many in the church have become textualists. We take a verse and we, we apply a meaning to it. and We take it out of context. We apply a meaning to it. We memorize and then we use it like an incantation or a formula when we're in trouble. This is selfish prayer, self-centered prayer. We see this in the Word of Faith movement. We see this in the Name It, Claim It 
generation. It's all about what I could get. I'm the biggest thing. God should be preoccupied with me. Then there's God-centered prayer. And in God-centered prayer, this is prayer that seeks to exalt God, seeks to praise the Lord for His worth, His lordship, and the glory that He deserves. There is, in God-centered prayer, there is no ulterior motive. We are praising God. We are glorifying God. We are exalting God because we love God. That's why we're there in prayer. And while we do believe that we are to pray with persistence, and that we are to pray with expectation, and we are to pray with fervency, we pray all things according to the will of God. We make no demand of God. We use the Scripture not to as some kind of magic incantation, but we use the Scripture to remind us of God's fidelity and God's faithfulness. R.C. Sproul made this statement, very famous statement. He says, prayer does not change God's mind. Prayer changes us. When we come together to exalt the Lord, to pray to the Lord, to glorify the Lord, we are doing those things which are pleasing in His sight. And therefore, prayer comes and it changes us. Let me give you an example of me-centered prayer. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And we're going to look at verses 10 through 12. We're going to go real quick, but I want to show you this. This is Jesus' story of the Pharisee and the publican, the Pharisee and the tax gatherer. Luke 18.10 reads as follows. Two men, went, uh, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. And the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. Notice the Pharisee's fixation upon himself. Right? He mentions I five times. He mentions God once. And he is fixated on himself. Notice his comment that he says, I thank thee I'm not like other people. And specifically to who? To this tax gatherer. You know, they were the most contemptible in all of Israel, right? They were considered worse than prostitutes because they robbed from their own people to line their pockets. So they were held in high contempt, right? And if you look at it, I don't doubt for a minute what he's saying is true. I have no reason not to doubt that what he's saying is true. For instance, I think that he probably was a good moral person, perhaps in the standard of the world. I think when he says that, uh, that he fasts twice a week, the requirement in the law was to fast once a week, I, I, I think that's probably true. He's probably being honest. And, I, and that he pays tithes of all he has, the law didn't require that you pay tithes of all you have. So I think it was true. 
But something is wrong. It's a prayer of the self, right? But notice here, but in his heart was not the worship of God, but his own self-righteousness, he's really exclaiming. Notice the prayer. Now contrast that with the prayer of the tax gatherer found in verse 13. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And notice the statement of Jesus. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Wow. Pharisees in the crowd could not have liked that statement by Christ. You mean to tell me that this penitent, repentant tax gatherer went away justified and the Pharisee did not? Why? Because the tax gatherer was repentant and in his repentance he was worshiping God. And he worshiped God with a broken and a contrite heart. What does Psalm 51 says? Lord God, a broken and a contrite heart, thou will not despise. It doesn't matter what you did. What matters is where is your heart? Have you come to the Lord with a broken and a contrite heart? This tax collector recognized his sinfulness before God. He recognized the authority of God. He placed himself under the mercy of God and submitted to the will of God. He repented. This is an example of God-centered prayer, no matter how simplistic it may look. God rewards God-centered prayer because those who pray God-centered prayers... Keep his commandments out of love. And by keeping his commandments out of love, God is pleased with them. Remember when they went to the Lord and they said, Lord said, why do you call me Lord, Lord? But you, you don't do the very things that I command. But when we do do the things that he commands, when we live in the will and under the authority of God, when we recognize God's preeminence and his sovereignty above all things, when we love him merely for who he is, well, then we're doing the things that is pleasing in his sight. Remember this, prayer is not a veiled means to an end, to get what we selfishly want. This is evident in verse 21. Notice what what John says, Beloved, if if our uh, our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence with God. You know that word confidence in the Greek translates to boldness. That's what that is. It translates to boldness. And that simply means that we could approach God without fear, without reprisal. Now, how can you approach God without fear or reprisal? The only way you can do it is if you're right with God. 
And the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10.15 says this, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence, that's boldness, to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. We can have an assurance of answered prayer if we are right with God. And let me tell you this, it's important to realize that God is not indebted to us for anything. God is not indebted to us for anything. He is not obligated to acquiesce to all our requests. Obedience must be done out of love, done as a pleasing sacrifice to God. That is what pleases God. Verse 22, because we keep His commandments. Notice what John says. And we do the things that are pleasing in His sight. So we can have assurance of God's truth. We can have assurance of the answered prayer. And here comes the big one. We can have assurance of salvation. Verse 23. And this is the commandment that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. Here, John speaks of the essential commandment, the primary commandment, upon which all else is built upon. I want you to see this. It is commandment that the Lord Jesus Christ demands of every person, every person He demands this of. And it is believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. Believe is the command from the Father. Now, sometimes we hear this and right away we go, but I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. But let's take a look at what John is speaking. Number one, we don't have to beat this to death. You guys know this. The word in the Greek for believe is to entrust oneself wholly to Christ. It has nothing to do with intellectual data, uh, data gathering of certain facts, right? It means you are entrusting Christ, and specifically, you are entrusting Christ in the finished work that Christ has committed on the cross. You are trusting nothing else for your salvation. Not your ethics, not your morality, not that you're a good person, not how many times you go to church, what church you go to, what you do. You're trusting none of that but you are trusting completely in the finished work of Christ. And as we say constantly, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Period. End of story. So we know that. And I want to make a point regarding that. The believer in Christ is involved in all facets of, of belief. Let me say that again. The believer in Christ is involved in all facets of belief. What do I mean? Well, the believer in Christ came to a point in their past where they believed in Jesus Christ. The day you were saved, the day you were born again, that action for all of us that are here, that are believers, took place somewhere in the past. In the past, we believed and placed all of our trust in Christ. Now, not only did we believe the gospel message, place our trust in Christ, 
But as believers, we are actively believing in Christ. That's the present. We are actively believing in Christ. So it's not a one and done in the past. Hey, I did this thing and it is done. Salvation is forever. It pulls through the entire life cycle. So we believed in the past and now as believers in Christ, we're gathered here because we are actively believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We are being active in obedience with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But there's more. The believer in Christ will, future tense, believe in Jesus Christ in the future. And this belief will be rewarded with eternal life. Because saving faith is a gift from God. I want to be clear with this. Because saving faith is a divine gift from God, the believer in Christ never stops believing in Christ. Never stops believing. I have known many people in my lifetime, many people, who have made professions of faith, many of whom attended a sound church, many of whom were baptized and gave testimony to Christ, many of whom were very articulate with the gospel, who have turned away from Christ and no longer serve Him. Matter of fact, I tend to see more of that today. Somewhere along the path, they got derailed. Somewhere along the path, they grew bitter, they grew angry. Oh, this this happened to me, blah, blah, blah. This person in the church said that, that person in the church said that. They're all hypocrites, blah, 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 man. I'll tell you, I could write a book on this. And no longer walking with Christ. I know people, my grandfather, I think I've shared this story once. There was a woman in my, my grandfather's church many, many years ago when I was a child. My, my grandfather told us this story. I'll never forget this as long as I live. There was a woman who was in the church, very faithful woman. Her husband at one time made a profession of faith, but fell away and fell into alcoholism. And after 30, 40, 50 years, whatever it was, the time he was old. And at 12 o'clock at night, my grandfather was summoned by the wife and said, the hospital says he's going to die. Could you go over? Now, the hospital was located literally a block from my grandfather's apartment in the church. At midnight, my grandfather threw on his clothes, went to the church, and knelt at the bed of this person. And he said, brother so-and-so, death is near. You're going to die. The doctors have said it. Your wife asked me to come to visit you one last time. I call you to repent, to turn from your sins and turn to Christ now. And my grandfather presented the gospel. 
And upon conclusion of my grandfather speaking, this man turned to my, my grandfather and said these words, which are chilling. Pastor, I want to believe, but I can't. And he died right there. That's chilling. Chilling. He had heard the gospel for 50 years. He had turned his heart away from the gospel. At one point in his life, it was thought that he was coming to church and he was getting his life right. But he fell away and fell into alcoholism and stayed bitter and angry. And the last confession of his earthly life was a denial of Christ. I want to believe, but I can't. His heart had gotten so hard. That's not true of the believer. The believer believed. The believer is active in their belief. And the believer will continue to believe. And subsequently, we have God's word and we have God's assurance of salvation. You want to know if you're walking right with Christ? How do you live? That's the whole message here. This whole epistle is nothing more than a series of tests. How do you live? You know, you ask me. I tell you this almost Sunday after Sunday. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you love God? Is Christ the greatest obsession of your life? Do you want to know God? Do you pursue God? You've heard me say this for many years. The proof of desire is in the pursuit. You can't be indifferent toward God and then one day try to stand before God and convince Him that you actually meant it. But as a believer in Christ, we could have assurance of salvation. I want to call your attention to another word there real quick in verse 23. It says, and this is his commandment that we believe, so we know what believe is, but he uses another expression here, in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ. Now, the name doesn't mean he's just identifying the name Jesus Christ because you know Christ's last, uh, Jesus' last name is not Christ, right? So what does it mean when he says, in the name of Jesus Christ? The Greek word for that is onoma. And what it means is, it means in the authority of Jesus Christ. So here, what John is saying, to believe in the name of Jesus Christ is to distinguish Christ from all others. That means we believe as authorized by Christ. We use that expression all the time. In Jesus' name, amen. We're not just reminding God of who his son is. What we are saying is we pray these things authorized by Christ who gives us the authority to pray these things. Romans 8, 38 through 39. 
Here's such a beautiful verse because we talk about assurance of salvation. Here's a, a glorious verse, Romans 8, 33, 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created being shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Believer, you can have assurance of salvation. You can absolutely know that you know that you know that you are saved. And I think there's no more glorious truth than that. When I rag on myself, when I get down on myself, when I am frustrated by my own failures and shortcomings, I can know that I am saved. That my Lord will never forsake me and my Lord will never cast me out. Not because of what I say, because what God is doing in my life. Amen? Let me move quickly here. Lastly, we have assurance of God's truth. We have assurance of answered prayer. We have assurance of salvation. And lastly, we have assurance of God's presence in our life. Look at verse 24. And the one who keeps his commandment abides in him and he in him. And we know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Not only does John tell us that we can have assurance of the things I just mentioned, but John presents a glorious truth that is directed to the believer in Christ. Because believers never stop believing in Jesus Christ. Because Christ has birthed in them saving faith. Because the Father has justified them, the Son has forgiven them, and the Holy Spirit has sanctified them. Thus believers love the brethren, they love the church. And it is evidence in that they abide in Christ, and Christ abides in them. That word abide, we're seeing it all over the epistle of 1 John. It, may, it means to remain consistently in, perpetually in. That's what the abide means. That Christ abides in us. It is perpetual. It is consistent. And we abide perpetually in Christ. John goes on in verse 24 to say this, And we know by this, that he abides in us. And here's the great truth. The Holy Spirit is the applicator. The Holy Spirit is the one who sanctifies. The Holy Spirit is the one who gifts. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts. The Holy Spirit is the one that brings forth exaltation. It is the Holy Spirit that is the applicator. It is the Holy Spirit that is the one that confirms that we are right in Christ. The Holy Spirit testifies to the believer that they are in Christ. Romans 8, 16 says that the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You know, John concludes this chapter, chapter 3, and he does a masterful job of distinguishing the believer in Christ from the unbeliever. You don't believe me? Reread re it again today if you have time. And he's confirming that the believer's life is evidence 
by the abiding presence in Christ and Christ abiding in Him. So as we conclude chapter 3, this great epistle of 1 John, let's, let's not forget some of the lessons we learned here. In John 3.1, John reminds the believer the great love of God has been bestowed upon us, calling us children of God. Glory to hallelujah, praise God. In John 3.10, John has shown us the distinction between the children of God and the children of the devil. The distinction is that the children of, the, of God practice righteousness and love the brethren. They love one another. In John 3.18, he reminds us that believers' proof of their salvation is not contained in what they say with their words, but by what they do. And as we've just seen in 3.24, believers keep the commandments of Christ. And they abide in Christ, and Christ abides in them. As a result, as a result, believers can have assurance of God's truth in their life. Believers can have assurance of answered prayers. Believers, and only believers, can have assurance of salvation and believers can have assurance of God's presence in their life. Listen, all truth proclaimed is done for the purpose that we would measure ourselves against these things. Where are you in Christ? This is still, you know, we're studying Tuesday night, end times. But I, I go back to this. This is still a day of grace. If any man comes to me, I'll no wise cast him out. If we're dirty and sin-stained like that tax gatherer, we can come to Christ beating our chests, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I tell you this, God will indeed forgive. If that's you when we go to the Lord in prayer, I don't have to know anything about it. You confess that to God if you're not right. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. A broken and a contrite heart, the Lord says, I will not despise. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.